It's been very reassuring this afternoon. When I like mint chocolates at night, like I can go on eating them. Thank you. But is, the, is it just the question of just being and being more fully, almost without doing anything at all, just being, so we live? I think that the reason I mentioned being and that Pope Francis mentioned being is they were trying to get the lowest common denominator that they could agree on, I think. Like, like if you say God is um, a supernatural creature or server, or if you say God is what love is, or God is what goodness is, people disagree with so much about what is love, what is goodness, what is beauty. And he was trying to say, like, I'm sure he would have said to the atheist, like, what do you believe in? What do you think is important? Do you love your family? And he would say, yes. And uh, I think he said something like eventually, the atheist, I love life. Um, and so like, people would even disagree maybe on what life is. So to be on safe ground, I think, they thought, well, like that being is not passive, being isn't static. Being is what keeps the whole, um, everything invigorated in life. Like the, the old, like the scientists would say, that lectern is full of movement, full of being. That everything is full of being, creativity is full of being, you are, I am. And so that, 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 that I suppose, one thing that everybody agrees on, there is being. Um, and that is in everything, especially when we try to, to love. That would be like being in this maybe most creative form. But that's why. I mean, it, it sounds maybe like a flat thing to say God is being. But that's what Catholics say. That's the definition of God. Um, but it does help if you're talking to somebody, say, and they say they don't believe in God anymore. And you talk away to them and say, well, you know, do you like the morning? Do you like light? Do you like the day? Do you like your family? Do you love, and so on. And because people have a very limited understanding of what God is, somebody who is watching, somebody who punishes, and so on and so forth. But if you, <coughs> but God is also love. So if you get people to say, yeah, yes, I love, I do believe in, in, in family, I do believe in, then there's, little, I mean, that's the most important thing you can say about being a Christian. I believe in what love is. I believe in, you know, that love that leads to creativity. But there'll be more and more, you know, discussion about all of that, I think, in the decades to come. But thanks for asking it. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I would like to ask about free will. Would you, do you believe that um, we have free will? And if so, in what does it consist? Um, like people do say, if everything is as hunky-dory and fine and dandy as I'm saying it is in a sense about the beauty of God and the love of God and the fantastic thing that it is to be a human being and we're in God's image and we shine with God's light, one might say, well, why do we do the awful things that we do? And now that we have removed Adam and Eve as being the cause of it, um, it's not an easy, nobody knows really. Why is there that huge strain in us that wants to destroy, wants to damage, chooses the darkness, wants to hurt, even where we love most? What is that bizarre um, tendency to wreck things? 
maybe more average than men than women, I would guess. Um, and like, it's up for grabs. What, 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 is the, what is the mystery of evil? I mean, it's one thing, I suppose, to make huge mistakes. It's another thing to deliberately get pleasure in torturing somebody. Every morning I pray for people who face another day of being tortured. I mean, I, I don't dwell on it long because it, it churns me up. People who set out, leave their families, say, kiss the wife in the morning and the kids, and spend the day torturing people, then go back again. That would be just one small example. And like, people are trying to, to, to say part of it is evolution and part of it is. There's a huge question about evolution and the way, the way so many of the uh, pro processes of evolution are hit and miss and go astray and cul-de-sacs, and yet we believe that God is behind it all. Huge questions coming up. So free will is simply that, that no matter how beautiful, um, I mean, Horace Thomas wrote a lovely poem called Making, how after six days God had made everything beautiful, the earth and the animals and all the thing, and the God went to bed that night thinking, there's something missing. All these have to obey me, you know. Nature does everything. The nature worships God. They act. He says, I must create a being that's free, that's free to love me or not. Otherwise, we'd all be either angels or, <coughs> or whatever. So, so we have free will. We can choose good or we can choose evil. And we choose evil so often. Every day, I'm sure, we fall seven times and choose evil. So it's, 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 it's something that we just, I think, have to discuss more and more. H how is it that we have free will? It's real free will. Um, and Horace uh, Thomas finished up the poem, so God created humans risking the disappointment. You know? So I can't, I, I would say given free will, uh, given time and space, we have to make huge mistakes. If we had to do the right thing all the time, we wouldn't be human. So I say, I think it's something we're moving into now when science is accepting and has accepted evolution, and the church is beginning to accept evolution, even though you notice Pope Francis didn't mention it as such, but everything he said is about evolution. It's the middle of a huge debate. It's not cut and dried anymore. But thanks for asking it. I wish I could answer it. As you gather from the audience, we're all getting on, really. And uh, any... No, 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 no. <laughs> any, any recipes, any suggestions on how to approach death, which at times I find very frightening because I love life dearly. And I think, well, how do I face this, this letting go of this wonderful thing that it is to be alive? Just, um, if you take, just let me say a few things quickly. If you take the baby in the womb, and um, supposing they're twins and they're chatting away, and they're delighted with where they are. They're never hungry, they're never thirsty, they never feel the rain or the snow. Um, it's always a good temperature, and they have enough to eat and drink, and they're there for what seems like a long time and they probably cannot ever believe there's an existence outside of the womb. 
and then the time comes when they know there's something important happening and maybe they panic a bit, but it's impossible for them to think. There's another way of being that they couldn't even imagine. So they're born and then <coughs> there are glaring lights and being thumped on the bottom and so on. I don't know what happens, I haven't been at a birth, but it's a bit of a shock, I would think, uh, for those two. And then they begin this new thing that they've discovered, <coughs> breathing. And they begin to breathe and lo and behold, they're alive and they're surviving in a way they never thought they could. When people say there's no life after death, how could there be? They never came back, etc., etc. I tend to think of that analogy a little bit, that we just can't even imagine what's there after we die and be prepared to be surprised. That's one thing, I think. Another thing I remember in the seminary when I was worried about these things and like well, what happens in heaven and so on. And then I think when I go home um, on holidays, my mother, I don't have to say to my mother, do you remember me? Or, um, you know, do, do, am I in the same room that I always was? Or do you remember that I like sausages and tomato soup and so on? Like, I, I wouldn't check that out beforehand. I wouldn't check it out at all, obviously. Because I trust my mother's love. So now, like, even if God said to me, look, you're, um, you're getting on a bit now, and um, um, you're doing your best, you poor old devil, um, what would you like when you die? What would you like? Who would you like to meet? And so on. I would say, look, um, I don't want to say it. I don't have anything in mind. I tr you've, you've done well by me uh, up to now. Uh, I trust completely that whatever happens after I die will be the best possible outcome for me. That's because, I don't know why, but the only thing I'm kind of sure of is that whatever we mean by God, I believe that I'm utterly, utterly, unconditionally, extravagantly, ridiculously loved by God. I think that's because of my mother. That's how I, that's how I see it. And so like, I don't spend a, a second thinking about what will happen after I die. Not a second. Completely at peace about it. I'm not so sure we meet all the people. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Um, um, I do worry a bit about before I die, you know, all the usual things, I worry about that a bit. But, but, but death itself, I, just, I, I probably see it as like the twins coming out of the womb. I just see it's going to be another whole adventure um, of all kinds of growing, maybe with less of the old stuff that we carry here, you know, the revenge and all those blockages. But I think the more we purify ourselves in this life, a bit like reincarnation maybe, I don't know. But I just think that every, every, every good thing we... Like I'm reading an awful recently poetry about, about heaven being remarkably like this earth. I seem to be contradicting myself. But it would be like this earth, but it wouldn't have the darkness of it, the pain of it, you know, the terribleness of it. But all I'm saying is that I would think it'll be exciting, very exciting, and, uh, but they would be growing, they would be developing. I mean, until we become actually like God's own self. That's in the scriptures, that's in the funeral um, prayers and so on. So I would be very positive and very trusting and quite happy. And that's why, like, if death came quicker than I'm expecting it, I don't think I'd be totally destroyed. I think I'd say, okay, you know, let's see what's what's coming up. Thanks. Father, I was down in Westminster the other day in the Holy Souls Chapel 
And there was um, a prayer card saying that um, if so most of us, when we die, we go to purgatory to make satisfaction for our unforgiven venial sins. Now, I thought God forgave us all. So I just, would you like to speak a little bit about forgiveness and dissatisfaction that I was reading about? I suppose like in the light of, all, of a lot of our uh, upbringing about purgatory and venial sins and satisfaction and you know, we used to spend uh, those days in November at home rushing in and out of the churches like lunatics, like small <laughs> lunatics, praying, you know, and how many, did you, how many souls did you release today from purgatory? We've said a number of prayers in different churches, you, release, you released a soul from purgatory. Do you remember that? You do, of course. Uh, so all I was, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, we have to make up. We have to travel and discuss a lot of these things, what might they mean now? Uh, like one thing that does seem to be finally being got rid of is that whole limbo stuff. You know, even the Pope says, well, we must look at that again. That means, you know, that even he can't figure it out. It's a terrible thing. That was a terrible thing, that limbo stuff. No, no, we are... One thing we can do, we are forgiven for everything and forever. That's true. But like, uh, sometimes we cannot receive it. Sometimes we don't believe it. I mean, do we believe it? When we go to confession, do we still think we're going to get our sins forgiven? I think a lot of us do. So purgatory is meant, I mean, if, if, if we were in a darkened room here, I mean, this is one simplistic way, and we walked out into the bright light, we'd be confused for a bit. You know, we'd kind of put our hands over our eyes or something. And they say, they say that you know, we're so far from what, what loving is, we almost need a bit of space to get adjusting to love before we go to heaven. Something like that. You don't hear an awful about purgatory anymore, and you won't, except for the right wing of the church and so on. So like, I would say that there's always uh, some meaning to all of these things and habits we have and teachings we had. And regarding purgatory, I would say something like that. We need to be purified a lot. We have a chance to do it here. See what blocks us. Um, are we becoming more and more transparent? What needs to be burdened out of us still in purifying us? And it makes some kind of sense to say that, yeah, th th there has to be a little of a, a bit of a waiting room somehow maybe before we can go from being very human into some place that has a lot more love in it. But punishment and all of that kind of thing, I don't go near that anymore, you know. And God doesn't punish anyway, ever. <coughs> well, all of that, I think, would be linked with the Adam and Eve stuff, coming back again under different ways. Yes, the, um, yes. Well, that's what they put it, isn't it? In a way, like, in a way, like, you know, it, like, uh, like, I just feel that on the one hand, there's more and more uh, enlightenment and light and, uh, and delight um, coming into our lives as we think of, you know, the new conversation between theology and spirituality and, um, and um, science and, and the physicist and all of that. It's really, I get so excited about it with that very positive theology of nature and grace. It's just, 
it's, it's the biggest, you know, it's just something that transforms our lives. But by the same token, and at the same time, there's a huge reclaiming and recalling of the right wing and the, what we call conservative, the old time religion that we were brought up with. And they both seem to be growing at the same speed. You know, and it'll be that way for a long time, maybe always. There'll always be the light and there'll always be the darkness. There'll never be only the one as long as we're human. Daniel, yes, uh, all this talk about death reminds me of something very, very... Um, there's a DVD called um, No Greater Love. It's on some Carmelite nuns in North London. And the interviewer interviews the prioress, who must be sort of 80 or something, been a contemplative nun for 50 years, perhaps. And he says, you know, are you scared of death? No. What about afterlife? She says, well... If there isn't any afterlife, at least the atheist won't be there to tell I say I told you so, which I think is lovely. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. But no, my po I, I spent a, I did a retreat in the last week of August, and uh, it was very, very warm, and we had lots of quiet times. And I remember laying under this beautiful oak tree. Now. I can't decide whether I was being pantheistic or, you know, we talk, you talk about creation and everything. I mean, I just stood there, I sat under it, laid on the ground, and just at the wonder of it, like Brian Cox's films, you know. I don't know, I, I don't know that I make the conscious sort of link to make it religious, if you know what I mean. Do I make myself clear? No. Just put that question again. Just put if, that question. I mean, I don't know that I made a conscious effort to think of it religiously, but it was just the awe and the beauty, and I spent hours, you know. Yes, yes. and, and, and I didn't reflect on it uh, consciously as a religious, you see. know, may yeah. try to turn it into a religious yes. experience. Yes. I mean, you know, I feel, yes, it was, but Yes. Uh, is, it pan <coughs> is it pantheism or...? Yes. Well, I mean, that's, that's another question like, like uh, and does it matter? In, in, in one of, one of the, the quotations I rushed through, and I was quite surprised to read it from Pope Francis in Laudato Si, he quotes John of the Cross. And like John of the Cross, uh, you know, would be a person to fool around with. He wouldn't be into anything romantic or lyrical and so on. Um, but he said... He says, sometimes when I'm looking at the mountain, I don't know whether I'm really seeing the beauty of the mountain or the beauty of God. And, uh, and or whether I'm being pantheistic, he used your word. And, and I, I'm beginning to think like, if somebody is there and, um, and they're seeing something like you did under the tree or the mountain and so on, like, does it matter? whether we say, thank you, God, uh, for that. Like, isn't the way you were, isn't that a worship? Like, we will never understand. Like, Jesus helps us to see that that is, for anybody who wanted to know and who might ask you, you could say, because Jesus came on earth, because God became human, we can say now, if you ask me, that was a divine moment. But that would be a second thing. If you're there and you're transfixed or you're transformed and you see that beauty and you just stop for a moment 
and you just, just don't look at it, you see it. That already is a whole amazing moment. I don't think it needs to be explained or to be named, except maybe you're asked. It's a great question. Um, I think to get into that kind of way of being and way of seeing and way of thinking, and for that to become maybe that bit more common in our daily experiences, where we can look at, you know, a city street, or, um, you know, or any any singer person, and see that. That's when we are really arriving. But there's a hundred names for that. Every religion would have a different name for that moment of mysticism, that moment of worship. The name doesn't really matter. What matters is that you felt it and saw it. That's what matters. You, know, you can't divide it up. Is it Roman Catholic? Is it Sufi? Is it Muslim? Is it Hindu? You know. Uh, like, like one, la one la very quick thing is, um, Rumi was a, um, a Persian mystic, and uh, in his village, there were there was a well, and and all the religions got on fairly okay, but they started a row about was the well Christian, or was it Muslim, and they and they called upon Nasruddin. If you know about Rumi, you'll know about Nasruddin, uh, a poet. And they asked his advice. He said, look, <coughs> when you're standing on the surface here, you'll always be squabbling, and whose well is it, and et cetera, et cetera. But he said, remember, deep in the water, the water is not divided. The water belongs to all. The water is one. So I would say, you know, ask different people what your experience was. There are a lot of different ideas. What's important is that you saw it. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to follow up on something you said this morning about um, true self and finding true self. I think what you've probably just been describing is, is something close to true self. Uh, that is the experience. Uh, but in meditation, we are told to try and get to a point of understanding our true selves. Um, a friend of mine said, uh, do you know what ego uh, means or what it stands for? And I ummed and ahed for a bit, and then she said, it stands for edging God out. And I thought, yeah, that's probably about right. Um, but could you just elaborate a little bit more on what, what you mean by true self and how one might recognize it? The people would say that there's just that one being, that one love, and that's deep in us, and it's expressed in all our different shapes and forms as, as human beings, in the way we are imaginative, <coughs> in the way we love, in the way um, we cannot love, in the way uh, we live our lives. And I often wonder if we ever can realize when we are acting out of our true selves, in very general terms, they're just names for what is God-like, what's positive, <coughs> um, what's attractive, what's creative, what's beautiful within us, and the other self, which skims on the surface of that, or maybe blocks that, or maybe um, diminishes that. Um, 
and that there's nobody who lives perfectly. Like even Jesus would have his <coughs> darkness, his weakness, temptations, anger, atheism, loss of God, uh, his father. And yet he would have the brightest light that would refuse to go under, um, to, lose utterly, utter, to utterly lose hope um, and, and belief and so on. So true self and false self are just names that are emerging about those two energies and powers within us. And we'll always have both. You cannot live with one or the other. People like Rainer Maria Rilke, you know, would say um, when he was asked to have some psychiatric um, help for his <coughs> condition as a poet, a certain strangeness as well. He says, I won't. If my demons leave, my angels will leave as well. And um, theologian Leonardo Boff said, they will forever be dancing in the ballroom of our hearts. So there's no clear-cut line, I would think, um, between the false and the true, or whatever words we use. But they're both within us. And I, I tend to, to be looking out in myself when would I say this is more true or more authentic of who I am and what I believe in and what would be less? And after a while, your body almost tells you, you know, or when you feel deeply, as by nature, or you cry, or you laugh, or some real lovely connection happens. I think that is the emerging of the beautiful what we would call divine within us. And I think we can notice a weakening almost in our bodies, in our power, when we kind of tell lies, when we're doing stuff that really is full of ego, you know, um, really full of vanity or jealousy. I find it myself every single day. Jealousy, envy, strange delight when somebody I don't like stands on the banana skin and falls. Um, you know, that's, I mean, I mean, we have the Ten Commandments, we have the New Testament, um, we have all these ways, the Enneagram, they're all trying to separate, I think, and to help us to rather to, to notice um, those experiences and those moments. And that's the examination of consciousness. And like, and like that's strange for Pope Paul to say, you know, it's sinful when you find no connection with the earth. You know, it's a sin when you don't care about developing that inner bond. The earth is our mother. We are her children. Do we give two hoots about what's happening to her? So that's the underground river. That's the flow um, uh, of, both, of both good and evil, I suppose, that flows through all our hearts. Like we're talking about mystery. And it would be an awful mistake to explain it, you know, to give clear answers. But the questions are great. Thanks. Um, this morning, I, I like what you said about um, the people getting to heaven. Um, the ones that, you know, that were, that were surprised 
you know, and all that. And I was just wondering whether you have anything to say about, you know, because Christ said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that whole relationship between sort of perfection, goodness, and what's, is there a difference between goodness and holiness, for instance? And can you be perfectly imperfect? I mean, can you be someone who's, like, you know, really kind of very imperfect but full of gratitude and thankfulness for the little that they've got? And so they're totally unenlightened and totally non up there in the hierarchy, really the lowest of the low, but actually they're actually very, very holy, but not at all good. I just wonder whether you can have anything to talk about that. Uh, I think you've, you've answered it really well yourself. <laughs> <coughs> in the middle of that, like, like when Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, there's a whole heap of scripture scholars who would say, perfect is not the right translation. You know, it would like be compassionate to something as your father. But nevertheless, um, we, we've been trained like in the churches we belong to, to, be, to try to be as perfect, to make a perfect act of contrition. If you can't get a confession, you might be too young to remember those days, um, and so on. So I would say it's about being perfectly imperfect. In other words, that this whole idea of becoming perfect is a killer. Because we never will be. We cannot be with time and space. And the question you asked, time and space uh, in an evolving world. There's no perfection. It's all becoming or going back or becoming. So Jesus meant, like Jesus was full of imperfections. Some Catholics are shocked at that. Because it's only we are imperfect. Jesus is perfect. No, it's how we handle our imperfections. To be perfectly human is to be sort of, as you say, um, to be imperfect as well. Um, and are the same with certainties. You know, the poor old Catholic Church loves certainties. It's black, it's white. It's right, it's wrong. It's certain or it's wrong. It isn't that way anymore. We're in the middle of mysteries. I can't hardly answer any of the questions <coughs> that people are asking today. And I, like, I don't mind that. I think I'd be an awful fool if I tried to. But to be aware that these are huge questions, they're great questions. Rilke again says it isn't about um, getting answers, it's about asking the right questions. And then he says gradually, there are no answers, but gradually, when we, when we reflect a bit and say, your question, does it mean that we handle our perfections as well as Jesus did, who had loads of imperfections? That's what it means. Because to be human is to be imperfect. And he says, uh, if you, if you ponder on the questions, they'll take you into some kind of an answer sometime. But answers are usually useless, he would say, because we're dealing with mystery. But in general, I would say certainties, all those certainties that, were, that we had to say yes to, and that question about imperfect, being perfect, being sinless, they make life intolerable. You know, that's what, there's a whole Catholic neurosis about being in the state of grace. You, know, you can't be in the state of grace except in the sense that you mention. Yes, yes. Hmm? Well, I, I think enlightenment is the process we're talking about, to be a little bit more enlightened, to be a bit that depth that I spent the whole day at, the depth, uh, figuring it out, being open to the Holy Spirit, a big heart open to God, little small steps at the time. And I think we know ourselves a bit. You know, when, we are, when we're less fearful of things, 
when we have a little bit more confidence, like St. Therese said, when we can look around us like, and be grateful and notice things. You know, the berries are a bit greener or redder this year than last year. You know, when we can let go of things, when we get over things, um, when we stop wishing our lives away, when we accept, accept is not passive um, um, at all. Like acceptance is saying, I can do nothing about this, but I can do an awful lot about tomorrow. And you, you, you say, okay, I won't waste any more energy um, accepting whatever it is, marriage, health, money, and then I'm going to really put all my effort and energy into, into helping on that whole process of growing, of evolution, of completing, of loving, putting more hope into, as we do a lot of our time. Um, I would say that is, is, in, is something as ordinary as that, is enlightenment. Um, if God is so loving and forgiving, why do we still have the sacrament of confession? The, the, if God is so loving and forgiving, why do we still have the sacrament of confession? <coughs> and this is what I would say to that. We, like we've said several times, some of you and myself, we're all the time forgiven for everything. That's the whole point. The Franciscans would say, certainly it isn't because Jesus died on the cross, because his father was angry and he did it out of atonement. I would feel fairly sure uh, of my grounds when I would say it's not that. The Franciscans would even say that we were forgiven just by God becoming human as the baby. We're forgiven. And more would say at the moment of creation <coughs> we were forgiven <coughs> because evolution is going to make a million mistakes in its natural form and its human form. So, so whenever you look at it we would be saying we're forgiven from the beginning. We go to confession, now called celebrating the sacrament of reconciliation. Number one, to remember that, to know we are forgiven, because there's always some kind of guilt in us. No wonder we, people talk about Catholic guilt, that we have the monopoly of, of guilt, the Catholics, because of all the talk about sin, that whole theology of sin redemption is like saying, you know, we're cursed from the start. That's the word used by, by, um, uh, by some of the early fathers, that we're a damned mass. Massa damnata. We're a damned mass. It's very hard to work your way into the picture we've been looking at today when you begin from that premise. So, so, so we are, we, we are doing things wrong all the time. We celebrate the sacrament of reconciliation to remember that no matter what, we are always forgiven and utterly loved by God no matter what. Richard Rohr says, there's nothing we can do to make God love us more or love us less. It's a given. It's the name we give to an everlasting love. It isn't God loving. God is the loving that happens. So we go to remember that, to know we're in the arms, we're safe. We're loved, we're forgiven, to make that deep into us in a wider way than what's actually happening to us each day. Second reason would be to remember that every day we are sinning more and more in many ways. The new one would be Pope Francis saying, if you don't give two hoots about uh, the climate change, then you're committing a sin against God's creation. 
And the third reason would be to remember that we are forgiven and to remember that, if you like, the penance, but to remember that the natural outflow of that is that we forgive everybody around us. That makes tremendous sense of the need to gather Advent, maybe, Lent, maybe, to remember that we are sinners, to remember and rejoice that we are forgiven, to celebrate it, um, and, to, and to make another uh, deep commitment to forgiving everybody that we have any resentment towards. And that's very hard. It's a kind of a dying to forgive people we know have hurt us. It's almost impossible. That's why the doing of it is quite divine. When we do it between humans, we don't have to go into a box to do that. There are three big reasons that totally renew the meaning of the sacrament of reconciliation. You know, it puts them, and so like when you look at baptism again, we look at all the sacraments again. They give, they give, you, they, like that baptism is the celebration of life. Not just getting rid of something, an exorcism is still called, getting the devil out of the baby. We're celebrating life. Life is the first sacrament. Celebrate it with people and with the church um, that's, that's, that's gathering around the baby. Um, uh, the celebration of life and, the, and, the, you, and then like in baptism, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're a priestess. You're a prophetess. You're a princess. That's more like it, that part of baptism. So a lot of overhauling will happen, will have to happen to our catechisms and our beliefs. Can I make a comment? Um, just on confession, I um, seem to remember being brought up that uh, necessary conditions for confession were sorrow and a firm purpose of amendment. And I was once on an aeroplane, and this aeroplane landed with such a jolt on the runway that all the passengers went, oh, you know. And then it sort of rumbled along. And then the, the captain came on the microphone. He said, I am so sorry for that appalling landing. I, my wife is on this aeroplane. I do assure you it will never happen again. And everybody applauded. So there we had an act of contrition and a firm purpose of amendment. Uh, uh, it's confession. Yes, yes. <laughs> there, yeah. there is something in us that wants forgiveness. Remember I moved to a, a parish and um, six months before that uh, some local young fellow coming home from the pub had put a stone through a beautiful stained glass window that was at ground level. Anyway, at great trouble, money and inconvenience, we reset the window, got a new window. I wasn't there when it actually happened. So about six months later, um, latest late one evening, um, the doorbell went and it was this young fella. He said, look, he said, I'm, I'm from around here. In the car is my wife and baby. We're going down to London uh, to begin our lives in a new way to get a job and so on. Because I can't go until I get some, um, some some sign of reconciliation. He said, I was the guy who threw the rock through the glass window. He said, I know it caused immense loss of money and, um, and, and, um, and, people's, um, um, uh, and people's mood. He says, I just need to be forgiven before I go. He had nothing to do with the church, I would say. So I, I kind of took him in and I said, put your hand on the window. 
I said, I'm on the, I think I said, I can speak on behalf of the prisoners. And I, you know, I said, yes, you know, you are forgiven. Have a good life, good family life, and so on. And I always remembered it simply because it's, there's just something in us that needs, it's deeper than church. It's deeper than believing in God. There's something in us. Maybe that's um, what, what you were saying about the true self. You know, maybe that there's something in us that needs to be somehow reconciled at peace, at one, with the community, with the world itself. And I think the more sensitive we are to that, the more enlightened uh, we are becoming. Are we okay? Just watch out like for those moments. Um, um, like, like your man with the John to the cross with the mountains and so on and like and try to increase those beautiful moments when somehow you're completely distracted into something else you forget yourself for a while it can be kind of timeless you're lost in wonder the the the, the last two popes would say that mozart's music was very close to incarnation um when you really get into it all our senses bring us hints and guesses like the poetry the touch, um, um, the dance, all of these things. And Pope Francis touches on all of those to show us what the experience of God is like. It, a lot of it is about connecting. You know, I, I think sometimes that all we need to do is, when we have those moments, those experiences, it isn't about a whole new set of values, a whole new set of experiences about God. It's the ones that we hold dearest and deepest and connecting them and saying, this is what grace is to feel. This is what God's presence is to experience. Do you see what I mean? It's kind of important to look at what we already have and say, yes, that is, uh, that is what God is. Are we okay? Uh, Daniel, uh, something that I think about quite a lot, slightly with age, is um, can and does God change things? As you put it, uh, I would say, I would say no. That would sort of, that would sort of mean that, that God is out there somewhere changing things. I would say that what I tend to mean about God is that God's grace enables us to change things. That like, we're always forgiven. We don't go to God to change that situation, but to make us aware we have always been forgiven. Um, very often, that kind of transformation, a little miracle, it happens in us, I think. Like, again, I wouldn't, I mean, God is the power within us. I tend to think that what we thought for ages comes from outside in, actually comes from inside out. Like, God is vulnerable. I, d I don't think of God as the almighty, invincible force. That was given for a reason in the past. Now I think that God is the very essence of our own power, which is God's power to change, to transform, to cause these miracles that we might have think God changed from out there. In fact, 
It's God becoming more incarnate in us. So I tend to think a lot now, it's within. Everything is from within, expressing itself outwardly rather than the other way around. I would want to keep that whole belief that God is the withinness already within, that all the way we love and everything forgive is God's within, changing things through us and as us. Again, that's a very, they're all hugely important, profound questions. And all one can ever say is just a hint of what it means to oneself.